welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! From Ruth chapter 1, and then we'll have a call and response. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And so she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Merah. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here. And as your word has been read, and as it is it about to be preached, Father, would your spirit be with us during this ancient exercise? Father, would your word, would your voice cut through all of the words and voices that we hear, whether from within or from without, that you would speak to us? That we, we would know your word to be true and Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected to be gracious. Father, we come here this morning from various places of skepticism or faith along that spectrum of success and sorrow. Given the year, many of us, Father, are probably feeling pretty hurting and battered right now. Meet us with grace and give us hope in Jesus. We pray even now in Jesus' name. Amen. So every year, at some point during the Christmas or Advent season, I will read during a sermon a quote from John Cheever, a 20th century writer, the beginning of a short story that is, Christmas is a sad season for the poor. And I figure that I will eliminate the middleman this year, get it out of my system now. I am going to read it to you here. Cheever's short story begins in this way, and it's a short story about a mechanic in an apartment building in New York City who has to get up really early on Christmas morning. Christmas is a sad season. The phrase came to Charlie an instant after the alarm clock had waked him and named for him an amorphous depression that had troubled him all the previous evening. The sky outside his window was black. He sat up in bed and pulled the light chain that hung in front of his nose. Christmas is a very sad day of the year, he thought. Of all the millions of people in New York, I am practically the only one who has to get up in the cold black of 6 a.m. on Christmas Day in the morning. I am practically the only one. So I think about that quote, I read that quote every year, but it feels different to me specifically during this year. It's a sad season for us right now. And I think one of the silver linings for 2020 pandemic for us is if the character in this short story is saying, I'm practically the only one that feels sad right now. And yes, for many of us, Christmas is a season of warmth and light and joy. For others of us, it is a season of some isolation and sadness. And we can think in that isolation and sadness, we're the only one but maybe not so much right now. It's easier for us to believe that there are other people that are struggling like we are. And we're struggling as COVID infections are on the rise again and death tolls mount. Increasingly, chances are that we ourselves know people that either have died from COVID-19 or people that have been very deeply adversely affected health-wise or otherwise. And in addition to that, we feel the same fatigue, even though it's mounting, we feel interrupted in various ways. 
And as 2020 goes on, there have been gatherings of various kinds, celebrations and milestones that didn't happen in the ways that we would have wished that they had. And in 2020, we have been through and are still going through what has felt like a particularly bruising election season. Also in 2020, we have been reckoning with systemic racial injustice, and we feel deeply wounded by the former and weighted by the latter. And happy Thanksgiving. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Probably for many of us, it was a much smaller one than what we're used to. And not only that, but also as we look ahead to Christmas, it's probably there going to be smaller too. And our fears and our insecurities, they abide and are on the increase. We carry these fears into the new year. We are in the same boat. At the Philadelphia Museum of Art, in room gallery 263, there is a series of four paintings by a Belgian painter who painted at the end of the 19th century, Léon Frédéric. The series of paintings is called The Four Seasons. And each of them feature the same little boy or cherub, but, as the title suggests, under four different seasons. And so, for example, you have this little cherub during Four Seasons Winter, and out in the field, but there's no leaves on the trees, you see a cold wind, but then the seasons progress around this cherub. From the cold of winter, cherub here, then you have some warmth and green during spring, then you have full green during summer, and then back, same cherub here, to yellow and brown and red and orange during fall, cycling back to winter again. This is a little bit how I feel during this COVID year. COVID began for us that walk through the liturgical calendar here in the Worldwide Church during Lent. I think it was the week after our Ash Wednesday service. But sort of like those four-season paintings, we have COVID, and we went from Lent, and then we went into what the church calls ordinary time, and now here we are in Advent, and this pandemic is still with us. We feel fatigued. And specifically for Advent, like I mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is a time as we wait for the coming or the arrival, as the Latin root of the word Advent suggests. The coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Liturgically, whether we look back and await anew the first coming of Jesus, or as David mentioned, during the confessional material, we await the second coming of Christ too. And woven into this season is a time of saying, we are not yet full. Therefore, we are waiting. And in a particular way for most of us, around the world in 2020, there is loneliness and longing woven into this year. So it is for Advent. Warmth and light and hope. This is the first week of Advent where we think about hope. But also Advent comprehends waiting and, yes, loneliness and longing. So bring your loneliness and longing and timid, tepid, moving towards bold hopefulness into this season. It fits. And these emotions also fit for us the book of Ruth. Loneliness and longing we find here. And all of the waiting in this ancient and beloved book 
God is there. Would God be here as well as we turn our attention to this ancient set of scriptures, the book of Ruth? And so, yes, we right now are pausing our sermon series on community, Get Off Your Island. So if we're pausing that sermon series this Advent season for the book of Ruth, even yet we are not pausing the ministry emphasis for the year, which is community. We still need it. And as we look at the book of Ruth, it can be considered to be a book of community lost and distressed, but then also a book of community found. A little bit of background about the book of Ruth. It is in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Historically speaking, a little bit in the middle. So, so far, if you know the characters, we have already seen walking through the history of the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We've already met Moses, who was with God's ancient people, the Israelites, in Egypt. Via the Exodus, God's people have left Egypt and have now come into the Promised Land. But at this point, we haven't yet met the kings. So King Saul and King David and King Solomon haven't happened yet. As it says right at the beginning of this book, we are in the time of the judges. This interim period where we find this family and there's a famine in the land. The book of Ruth is not big. It's only four chapters long. And even if it's a short book, I would encourage you to read it. You could read it today or if you want some Better for your mental health counter-programming, you can read it tomorrow night during Monday Night Football. It's a short book, but it is a great book, much beloved by Jewish people and Christians around the world throughout the ages, far out of proportion to its slender size. And so the book of Ruth has been loved by many, including me, for many reasons, including these. This is such a literary book. It's written with great skill, and it's a book of great warmth. We should savor it. And also people love this book of Ruth because it's life-size. So many Old Testament histories are about big things, where we read of patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, where we read of kings and prophets. This book is not about anybody super famous otherwise from being recorded here. Just a family under some hard scrabble circumstances, trying to get by. This book ostensibly is not about the fate of nations, but about the fate of a family. And it's been noted by commentators, this book in the Old Testament is uniquely feminine. There are women characters that by and large drive the drama of this story, and commentators will say as well, we, we sense more of a feminine perspective coming from this book. And so for these reasons and others, people love the book of Ruth, including for its emotional tone. There is a happy ending to the book of Ruth, but also there is deep melancholy and even bitterness. One of the characters will meet, Naomi, sounds at different points really pretty bitter. She says at one point in the middle of the chapter, "'Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me.'" Then this group, they lift up their voices and they weep again. But from my perspective, if we can hear the honesty about hardship here in the book of Ruth, we can trust as well the hopefulness. So the story sets off here, and we have a double bereavement and also a double surprise. There is a famine in the land of Judah, 
and there is this family that moves outside of the promised land, moving towards the land of Moab. They're hungry. They, they need food. They need sustenance. We meet some of the characters in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of, the, of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They're from Bethlehem, Ephrathites in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The story goes on in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. There's one bereavement. And she was left with her two sons. These two sons, they took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, but another bereavement. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Multiple bereavements on multiple levels and if there's death of Elimelech and the two sons, Malon and Kilion, it could be said as well, and scholars will note this too, that at some sense, there is death for these women too. They're experiencing the loss of land and line and security. Loss of land, especially from the perspective of Naomi, the Israelite, she is outside of the promised land, outside of that special place that God had in those old times. And she's cut off. She has no heirs that are going to inherit this land. She is in a bad place, not only by way of land, but also by line. It's a universal human impulse for the family line to continue through children. I'm reading a book right now by an author named Claire Massoud, another one of these books talking about her lifelong love of reading. And she comments at one point about the power of children in her own life. It goes this way. And my quotes are on the ground. It's a new podium here this morning. We'll get the hang of it. Masood has put it this way. Children protect us from being overwhelmed by the ubiquity of decay and loss. As we face the death of our parents and then those of our peers, it is the pressing needs of our children, the faith in their futures that keep us in life. And even more for ancient Israelites, one of the senses in which they experience eternal life with the one true God is for their line to continue. But seemingly here, maybe the line of Elimelech and Naomi has been eliminated. And also security. We have three widows now in this story, and in a patriarchal culture, they are cut off from many different ways of sustenance and social network and social covering. They're on their own, tantamount to death. The bereavement here in the book of Ruth is deep. But it's also an invitation. If you have experienced bereavements of different kinds in 2020, bring them here into the book of Ruth. Bring them to the God of the book of Ruth. Be bereaved here with us in this season. And if you're somebody who's tuning into our worship services or otherwise, maybe you're checking out spiritual realities, not sure where you are with God and with Jesus, we appreciate your presence with us. Would you consider what to do with your own pain? One of the best questions that I love as we gauge spiritual realities and what's really true about life, the universe, and everything how does one's worldview or system deal with pain and suffering? And from my perspective, the Christian story culminating in Jesus crucified and resurrected has profound resources in that regard. So a double bereavement 
here in Ruth chapter 1, but then also a double surprise too. The last hope. Maybe there is the famine lifting back in Judah. Maybe we should go back there, verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And in terms of legalities now, what Naomi does with Ruth and Orpah, her two, her two daughters-in-law, she emancipates them and says, you're free to stay here. You have no continuing obligation to me. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi says, go be with your own people. I'm going to be alone. And the surprise for us is how bitter Naomi has become. She's an Israelite, a good guy in the story, so to speak, where she is the one yet here who is supposed to know the one true God and surprisingly feels this bitterness towards God. Verse 14, once again, For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Or verses 20 and 21 at the end of the chapter, after the return to Bethlehem, she says there, Do not call me Naomi, which is a name that can mean lovely or pleasant. Call me Marah, meaning bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought this calamity upon me? But if anything, we can be encouraged by how deeply bitter and discouraged Naomi is because even this bitterness occurs not without but within the experiences of the people of God. But if on one hand we're surprised by the bitterness of Naomi, we are surprised too by the resilience of Ruth. Naomi tells both of her daughters-in-law, stay here, it's not worth it for you to come to me, back to Bethlehem, back to Judah. Orpah says, yeah, that makes sense. And so she stays in Moab. We don't blame her for that. But Ruth, on the other hand, goes in the other direction and says, I am going to stay with you. At the end of verse 14, we read that Ruth clings to Naomi. That's a strong word, cling, that we first encounter way at the beginning of God's story in Genesis, the creation of Adam and Eve, where the writer there says, therefore a man will leave his father and his mother and cling and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So it is here. Ruth is clinging, cleaving tightly to Naomi and says, I am committing myself to you even at great risk and great cost. Verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or turn from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God, ascending steps of commitment. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. The surprise here is Ruth is the Moabite who did not grow up in the covenant tradition of Israel, and yet she is showing such faithfulness and loyalty to her mother-in-law here. And I understand that whether it's movies or TV shows, a fairly common line from one protagonist to another is to say, I'm coming with you. 
Sometimes it's a little bit cheesy. I get it. Always endearing. I love it. I mentioned a couple weeks ago The Mandalorian. At the end of season one of The Mandalorian, one character to another, key moment, I'm coming with you. And we love it. That's heroism. That's bravery. We're in. And for a dear friend couple of myself and my wife, Emily, that's part of their engagement story. They went to grad school together, good friends over another number of years, didn't really date, but it was time to go to different cities after graduate school, get a job. The man told this woman, well, I guess it's time for me to go back to this other city. And then the woman says, well, I guess I'll have to come with you too. And so began a very short dating, very short engagement period. They got married. We love stories of commitment like that. And so if we are able to see hardship in this story, we can learn some things here about hardship and also learn some things about Jesus himself, the center of every story of the scriptures. Three quick okays that we can learn from this story. From Naomi, it's okay to be honest to God. It's okay to be honest to God. She is raw in her emotions and her bitterness toward her Lord. That's okay. And maybe for some of us watching right now, you are being held back spiritually if you're not being completely honest with God. God wants you to be that way in Jesus Christ. Take all of your 2020 angst and sorrow and fear and frustration and enemy and fatigue your burned outness, and say, God, this is where I am. Where are you in all of my mess? That's a point of growth. And if we're not honest before God, we're in alienation within ourselves, with other people, and before God. It's okay to be honest with God, Naomi, and also Ruth. It's okay to do hard things like Ruth is doing here. For millennia, in both Christian and Jewish tradition, Ruth has been an inspiration where people have seen her example here. Guys, gals, be a Ruth. Show this power. Show this doggedness. Show this faithfulness. Maybe there's somebody in your life where you need to be a Ruth right now. Maybe that opportunity is before you. Maybe there are people in your life that have done hard things for you on your behalf and you wouldn't be in the good places that you are to whatever extent you are if those people haven't done those hard things for you. It's okay and God wants you to do those hard things for God and for other people. Also, it's okay to wait for God in the midst of hard things. It's okay to wait for God in the midst of hard things. In Ruth chapter 1, it ends with a note of hopefulness. Maybe they're back in Judah. Maybe the famine is lifting a little bit. Maybe good things are going to come. We don't know. We're waiting. In this Advent season, we're waiting. It's okay to wait on God and trust that even if we're not seeing God showing up in all these amazing technicolor ways, we can trust that God is still at work. And Ruth, God is at work, mostly obliquely. There are so many books, whether we see Jesus in the New Testament or God working in the Old Testament, where God is the main actor in a story. Thus saith the Lord, and God did this, and God acted in this way. Most of the time in Ruth, God is talked about 
and then works behind the scenes. But God is still there to care for his people. And we can trust the same. To use a theological term, the church over the years has called this providence. God's care for us. God is in authority over all things. God is in control and directs all things for our good. And he is near to us by way of his presence. Now in 2020, here in Advent, we can look to the example of Ruth, this book, and say we can wait. And we can trust that God is at work. Now, finally, here as we wrap up, we learn about Jesus from this story too. The center of the Christian story. Every story, whether Old Testament looking forward or New Testament looking to and looking back to Jesus, culminates, climaxes in Jesus of Nazareth, God's chosen one, the Messiah who came into the world, who lived with us, died for us, and rose again. We see here in the story of Jesus, climactically, that it is okay to be honest with God because Jesus was. All the way to and through the cross, Jesus says there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus died and rose again, paying the penalty for our sin, to give grace that all that come to him by taking steps of faith, and if you're watching, and there are steps of faith yet for you to take towards Jesus, take them now. Let us know that you have. The reason that we can be honest with God is not because God is just in some gauzy, sentimental way a nice guy. Maybe you've had interpersonal reactions where you've been honest with somebody else and it didn't go well at all. The primary reason why we can be honest with God in Christ is because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins so that for all of our mess, for all of our sin, Jesus has already taken care of that penalty so we can be honest and come messy to God. Do that. God, this is my mess. Even this is my sin. Jesus, thank you for taking care of it. I'm just being honest with you, Lord. This is where I am. And we see in Jesus as well that it's okay for us to do hard things. Underneath our work of seeking to do hard things is Jesus who does hard things for us to and through once again his crucifixion and resurrection. Underneath our hard work is Jesus on behalf of ourselves and for our world. And we know that even as we wait, God is at work. Because at the climax of the story between crucifixion and resurrection, there are three days of waiting. As we'll confess here in a moment, Jesus descended into hell and only on the third day arose again. But in that waiting, God was working. And so we can wait as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.